Thank you for tuning in to Far Better, where we look to be pleasing to God in this life, so our eternity is far better. I'm your host, Michael Clark, and today, as always, you can follow us on our social media links that are posted in the show notes, but we're going to talk about a fourth thing that we have been given victory over. You know, we've talked in the last several episodes about all of the things that Jesus has given us the victory over. We've talked about victory over fear and the world and death, and now we're ready to talk about victory over sin. According to Romans 3.23, there is no one on this earth that can say that once they've reached an accountable age, they have no sin in their life. And according to Romans 6 and verse 3, we know the wages of sin is death. And so this is a pretty big issue that we have in our lives that we're going to have to make sure to correct, right? So what do, what, what do we need to know about sin? I think first we need to know what sin is. It doesn't do me any good to say that there's sin and not define it. Aren't you glad that when someone breaks out of the prison system or breaks out of some type of system and, and they're not a very good individual, a murderer or a criminal, aren't you glad that the reporters don't sit there and say, we don't want to give you the information on what they look like because we're afraid we might hurt their feelings? I mean, could you imagine the outrage that we would have if that were the case? We know they're in your area, and we would tell you normally what they look like, but we just don't want to hurt their feelings. You know it would do me no good to say that there's sin and then never explain to someone what sin is? So let's talk about sin. In 1 John 5, beginning in verse 16, you have a passage of Scripture that talks about a brother who sees someone sinning a sin that doesn't lead to death. He'll ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. There are sins, there are things that will lead to death. So essentially, you could say sin is something that leads to death. And when I think about this idea that I see a brother or a sister dealing with these, I'm given this obligation to go to them, to speak to them, to bless them in the way that I can bless them by helping them get rid of the sin that they have in their lives and trying to motivate them to repent. But notice this. Here's the truest definition that you can find of what sin is. It's found in verse 17. All unrighteousness is sin. Sins that will that people will turn from in repentance. This unrighteousness keeps them from the Lord. And so there is sin not leading to death. This is the idea of there's someone who sins, they find out that they've sinned, and they repent. They turn away from what they've been doing and go a different direction. You might know the definition of repentance, but I was taught at the Memphis School of Preaching, and I love the definition that I was taught. Repentance is a change of heart which brings about a change of action. A change of heart. That means that you are pricked in the heart. You learn something that you have done or are doing is a problem, and it bothers you because you know that you can't be pleasing to God if you're involved in this particular thing. And then you determine, okay, I know it's a problem, but how do I fix it? And so someone, maybe even just the Bible itself, you read, you study with an individual, and you figure out, okay, here's what I'm doing wrong. Here's the course of action to correct it. But what happens if an individual, say they're struggling with a particular addiction of some sort, 
and they say, I really want to get clean. I really want to get clean. And so they ask God for forgiveness. God would be willing to forgive them. But suppose that they wake up the next day and they make no changes in their life to try to be forgiven in the sense of to try to avoid and beat that addiction. There will come a point where you could make the statement that they really don't want to overcome the addiction. Now, I'm not saying that addiction is not an easy or that addiction is an easy thing. I understand addiction. I know people who've struggled with it and continue to struggle with it. Addiction is something that doesn't go away. You learn how to handle your addiction. And you can. And the people that I know have done so, they make a determination, I'm not going to do this anymore. And so they don't. All unrighteousness is sin, and sin leads to death, and it can cause my soul to be eternally lost. So that change of heart, oh, I know I'm doing something wrong, has to bring about this change of action. I won't do that thing again, no matter what it takes. That's what sin is. Sin is something that keeps us from righteousness, and repentance is something that after that change of heart, we bring about this change of action. But who sins? I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that we know the Bible teaches that all who report of an accountable age sin, but you know, there are some who say in the world, I do not sin, or I will not sin. Some people get this idea and this mindset that they have been a Christian long enough or they know the world is not really that bad of a thing, so sin's just a myth. But the Bible tells me that it's an incredible cancer, something that has destroyed countless lives and families and will continue to do so especially as long as we continue to allow it to have a place in our homes. You might remember 1 John 1 and verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. Or how about verse 10 of the same chapter? If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Everyone who reaches that accountable age has committed a transgression. They've lost. Only Jesus Christ is one who came to this earth and lived a life having never stumbled, though he was tempted. But there is a way for someone who has committed a transgression to become clean again with God. The New Testament calls this baptism something that washes away the sins. And as we continue to look through the New Testament, you see these people in countless situations that are plagued with sin, and the result of their salvation is this baptism. But what happens then? Because after you become a Christian, you know how, how do you handle it? Does sin just disappear forever? If you look over at Acts 8, you've got this man named Simon, and he was a magician, a sorcerer, so to speak. And after he became a Christian, he notices the apostles performing miracles. And so he goes to Peter, and he tries to buy with money this miraculous power, which was a sin. And Peter rebukes him sharply. Let me ask you a question, a serious and honest question. 
if it wasn't possible for Simon to fall away because he was a Christian, because he was saved, why was he rebuked so sharply? If it's possible that Simon was a good, and think about this, he wanted to use the miraculous power, but he went about getting it the wrong way. No, it was that Simon in that moment, even though he was a Christian, had committed the transgression against God's word and stood in danger of hellfire and brimstone in the judgment. And Peter tells him, repent and pray that God will forgive you of this wickedness. So I am to understand then that after I become a Christian, I'm not immune to sin. But I do have an ability to avoid it. Notice 1 John 5.18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Oh, that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? But he who has been born of God, notice this. This answers the very first part of the verse. Keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We're living in a world of darkness, right? A lot of wickedness goes out into the world. If I know that a child of God doesn't sin, that does seem to present a predicament for the idea that we can stumble and fall. But the answer is in the verse itself. He keeps himself. You know, if you are driving a car, you can keep yourself from getting a ticket by obeying the speed limit, by obeying the laws. The moment that you stop and you start to speed, are you... Obeying the law of the land? Not anymore. So what would happen if a police officer were to clock you going over the speed limit? If he so chose, he could pull you over, give you a ticket. What if you ran a stoplight and a police officer, she, she notices you. She could pull you over and give you a ticket. But you didn't break the law yesterday, and you didn't break it the day before, but now that you've broken it, shouldn't they just let that slide? Because overall, you're a really great driver, and you did pass the driver's test that made you the capability or gave you the capability to become a driver. So shouldn't that mean you're immune to breaking the law? Obviously not. But the one who decides when they step into the vehicle... I'm not going to speed. I'm not going to run a red light. I'm not going to, you know, do a rolling stop. I'm going to make sure to obey the laws of the land, and I'm going to obey all the traffic laws. That's the person that doesn't get a ticket. So if a Christian then wakes up in the morning and says, I am going to live today for Christ. I'm going to make sure that what I say, what I do, where I go, and how I present myself is as if Jesus was standing right there next to me. That's exactly what we have to do. And as I think about the importance of what walking in the light is, I know that that's found in 1 John 1. Walking in the light. But it does imply that one could choose to walk in darkness. Have you ever gotten up in the middle of the night, maybe to get a drink of water, or you know, your throat is parched and so you need a drink of water? You ever gotten up in the middle of the night and not realized that something that is not normally in the middle of the room has been put into the middle of the room? 
If you leave the lights off, what are the chances of you hitting that? Pretty good. If you turn a flashlight on, maybe with your phone or even just using the light of your phone, you might be able to see that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then you'll know, oh, I want to avoid that. That's what being a Christian is. It's walking in the light which exposes the things that are in darkness that can hinder us, that can trip us up. And by doing so, we don't have to fret. We don't have to worry about all of the horrible things that can occur to us. Because verse 19 says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. I know I'm a Christian, and I know that the world itself is in control of the devil, and the devil has power over it. But I'm set apart. So how is it possible then to avoid sin? I mentioned it a moment ago, walking in the light, but 1 John 5 also gives us an indication because in verse 4, he says, This is the confidence we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, we have the petitions that we have asked of him. We know we've got that ability. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is true. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, notice verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Keep yourselves from idols. This carries an idea of guarding oneself. When I go home tonight, I'm going to walk in through the garage door, I'm going to close it behind me, and I'm going to make sure that I lock the door. Why? Because I don't want anybody coming in. At night, before I go to bed, I am going to go over to my little alarm system and I'm going to turn on the code. And no, I'm not going to tell you what the code is. But I punch in the code, I turn on the alarm. Why? Because I know that there are people out in the world that might decide that my house looks like it might have some good stuff in it, and they want to break in and take it. And I'm going to guard not just myself, but my family from it. But what if I in my Christian life allow certain things to become idolous to me or idolatry to me. I will begin to worship things that aren't the Lord. And that's going to present a huge problem in my Christianity. Jesus Christ has given me a great victory over sin because according to Hebrews 10 and verse 4, it wasn't possible that the blood of bulls and goats could save me. So put yourself in the shoes of an Old Testament Christian. I guess I should say an Old Testament follower of the Lord. In that time when they would bring forth their offering of sin, the sin offering, it wouldn't have been uncommon to consider that the priest could look at them and say, thank you, I'll see you next year. Because in the Old Testament system, the sin offering just rolled the sins forward a year. But you still had to come back the following year, and the year after that, and the year after that, and after that. Imagine the horribleness that you must have felt every year when that offering was to take place. And to know that you had to come back the next year. But when Jesus Christ came and died for our sins, 
He sat down, Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 3. He finished all that we needed to do. I don't have to fret. I don't have to worry about Christ Jesus coming back again sometime later this year to be offered once more so that I can be saved. It was sufficient. Jesus made the offering for me that I couldn't make for myself. And he purged the sin of mankind. And he gave me this great victory over it. And aren't you glad? You don't have to be a slave to sin. I don't have to be bogged down with sin. Our lives are far better because of Christ. So we need to start living like it, right? I want to thank you for tuning into this episode. And in the next episode, we're going to talk about how we gain this victory. And we're going to ask ourselves, what do we need to do in order to be victorious? We know we've got victory over these things, but how can we access the victory? Until then, I hope we please God now so that our eternity is far better.